Hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and you're not going to believe how awesome our guest is today. We have Dr. Joe, who is the Regulatory and Licensing Officer for the Opal Reactor at Ansto. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joe. Hi, Amelia. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? Fantastic. It's wonderful to be here today. That's good. I'm still sort of like recovering from that mouthful because it was quite a long title, but I feel like it's quite a rich title, so I'm looking forward to where this is going to go. It makes me sound like I'm a lawyer and nothing wrong with lawyers. Um, I'm actually an engineer working in regulatory and licensing. And I think we'll have to get into what that is, but hopefully we're going to start with an easy question. I know it's not, but we're going to pretend. What is your job? It's interesting because this should be easy to answer, but it's really not. So I might explain, start by explaining uh, where I work what the Opal Reactor does, and then what my role is at the Opal Reactor. Sounds great. Excellent. ANSTO stands for the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. It's a federal government organisation, so we work for the federal government, and we are Australia's leading organisation in the area of all things nuclear. That's what ANSTO is as an organisation. We have a whole lot of infrastructure that we use for the purposes of science, making nuclear medicine, and doing uh, particular projects for industry. So our focus is really nuclear science, and by that I mean using small particles to do things. We do. We have all these amazing facilities, and we use these facilities for a range of different things. So I work at the Opal Reactor, which is the only nuclear reactor in Australia. It's actually the third reactor that Australia's ever had. There was one called Haifa that operated from about 1957 to 2007, and there was a small one called Moata, which operated, I believe, from the 60s to the 90s. So this is our third reactor in Australia. Over 100 people that work here, but my specific job is as the regulatory and licensing officer. What does this mean exactly? I like to use an analogy to explain it. If you want to drive a car in Australia, you need to have a license. So once you have a license, you're expected to follow certain rules. Otherwise, you can be fined or lose your license or worse yet, end up in jail. Uh, so Opal, the Opal Reactor also has a license to operate. And with this license, we're expected to do certain things. So my job is to oversee those requirements to make sure that we're doing them. Yeah, right. So your job is kind of to make sure that a nuclear reactor is sticking to the rules. Sticking to the rules in relation to nuclear safety and radiation protection. There's also rules for normal work health and safety, which most people may be familiar with. But my interest really is keeping the reactor itself safe and helping to keep people safe from radiation. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about the average Australian, but I'm assuming most people were under the assumption that we really don't have any nuclear anything here. I really can't speak for the Australian population, but I can say I'm within 100 metres of a reactor <laughs> core right now, so we definitely do have a, a reactor <laughs> in Sydney. It's about eight kilometres from Sutherland, if anyone knows where Sutherland is, in South Sydney. So I'm within 100 metres of this reactor right now. It's very real. It's what you call a research reactor. It's not a power reactor. It's a research reactor. So it has a different use than a power reactor. What do we need one for? What does it do? That is a fabulous question. (laughs) So the thing that all (laughs) nuclear reactors have in common is that they have a core made of uranium, sometimes plutonium, but usually uranium. And in the core, the uranium atoms split. So for a research reactor... When these uranium atoms split, more neutrons are made. So research reactors use those neutrons and put them to good use. So in the case of the Opal reactor in Sydney, we use those neutrons for three main purposes. The first one is to make nuclear medicine. We make several different kinds of nuclear medicine, mostly focusing on diagnostic. So when people have particular conditions and they want a diagnosis, we'll make those medicines for people. We also make some therapeutic nuclear medicines as well. So for the diagnostics, about one in two Australians in their lifetime will use one of the products that's originally made at Opal and then within other parts of ANSTO. So that's one of the things we use Opal for, making nuclear medicine. 
We also use Opal for scientific research. We send neutrons down these big, long beam tubes to instruments where some very, very smart beamline scientists do things with samples. It's a bit of a mystery to me what they do sometimes, but they use the neutrons to take pictures of materials for various reasons. And lastly, we also use neutrons for industrial purposes. So Australia is actually the largest, worldwide largest producer of doped silicon for the electronics industry. What is doped silicon? Doped silicon. <laughs> okay. So if you take silicon, they're ingots. So they're all different sizes. But if you can think about a cylinder of, of a metallic shiny substance, we put this into the reactor and we spin it around slowly over time. And the neutrons go all the way through the ingot and change some of the silicon particles into phosphorus. This material is a very, very good semiconductor. So we, we do this with the silicon ingots, we send it off to the customers, they slice this up into little tiny pieces and put it into electronic components. I'm talking 50, 60, 70 tons of silicon per year. This silicon isn't used in bones and things like that. It's used in high-end applications such as high-speed trains, uh, wind turbines, uh, things that have high power and need high reliability. How did anyone work out that you could do that to silicon? Like who was wandering around one day with like a chunk of silicon was it like, you know what, I can make this better. I'm going to put it in a nuclear reactor. Well, I guess it's been known since the 1930s or so that if you hit a substance with neutrons, you can change it from one substance to another. You can change uranium into plutonium. You can change silicon into phosphorus. <laughs> you can change from one element to another. So I don't know how someone came up with this exactly. It's a good question. <laughs> Let's just put this in and see what happens. <laughs> I, I'd say it was all done theoretically a long time ago. Honestly, like I thought you were in nuclear physics, but it sounds like you're actually in alchemy. <laughs> Alchemy. I wish I could turn, uh, I don't know, some lots of things into gold, then I wouldn't have to work for too long. Yeah, I feel like that gold might not be the most receptive to this since it's like Mr. Stable over there. Back to the nuclear medicine, because like one in two Australians, that's a, that's a lot of people. And now I'm wondering what's happened to me over the years. Like where, where did, why didn't I get a little sticker that says like, you have been medically assisted by ANSTO. That'd be so cool. Um, what sort of medicines are we talking about? That would be excellent if anyone got, everyone got a little sticker. Um, <laughs> okay, so the main product that we make is called Technetium 99M. ANSTO makes thousands of doses of this every week and they're delivered to hospitals in Australia and also around the world. So every single week, thousands of doses. So what is it used for? It's a diagnostic agent. It's used to look at things like the heart, brain, bones, um, and the blood. So basically, it's injected into you and with a tracer. So the tracer goes to a certain part of your body and the radiation goes with it. And technetium-99 gives off what's known as a gamma particle. So if you can get the, these gamma particles to a particular part of the body, you can use a camera to detect the gamma particles and get a really good picture of what's, go what's going on within the organ or the blood or the bones. Right. So it's sort of, this is a terrible analogy, but it's sort of like adding a filter on Instagram, which sort of like highlights some bits of a photo and sort of makes less of it obvious, but for an organ. <laughs> As somebody that doesn't use Instagram a lot, I'll just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a really, really good picture, often better than you'll get with x-rays or other MRIs and things like that. I mean, it's got certain applications and x-rays and MRIs are good for some things. CAT scans, spec scans and other kinds of scans are good for other applications. So I once got injected with like a um, contrasting agent for going into an MRI. Is there a possibility that that would have been, I feel like that was some sort of radioactive-ish thing that happened to me. It may or may not have been radioactive. I'm hoping they would have told you if it was, though. So the fact that you don't remember implies to me that it probably was not radioactive. I was a bit distracted by the MRI because those machines are, like, pretty intense to be inside. I've had one myself and I had to hold the same position for half an hour. It was very uncomfortable. And they themselves produce their own kind of radiation. Actually, they're not. They're all magnetic fields, so there's no radiation no ionizing radiation associated with an MRI. 
obviously, because the word magnetic was in there, Amelia. Hmm. You can tell I wasn't paying a lot of attention at the time. I was just like, ah. It's you, like, MRIs aren't used for nuclear medicine. They're used for other things. So it's the spec CT scans and other, because I think of the names of all the different machines. <laughs> I, I do feel like I just have this amazing respect for all these people who managed to, the number of ideas that had to be joined up to reach the point where you realize that if we create this technetium 99, we can give that to people and then we can get like, we can do all these diagnoses, diagnoses that we couldn't have done otherwise. Like that's, that's an amazing chain of events to reach there. Absolutely. And it's a fantastic substance, even though it is radioactive and we put it in people, it doesn't interact a lot with the body and it doesn't last for long. So it's a wonderful diagnostic tool because the impact from the radiation are very, very minor. Are you able to tell us what radiation is? Yes. I love this question because it's like, because mm, that's a very good question and people haven't actually considered before what radiation is. So, we, we just know we should be scared of it, right? Like, Should we be scared of radiation? Uh, it can be harmful in large doses, but the reality is that we're living in a world that's full of radiation. We're getting dosed up as we speak right now. Radiation from the, um, the rest of the universe is coming and hitting us and radiation from all the rocks and from the land is, is getting us, and we're also eating it because it's naturally occurring in plants and bananas and Brazil nuts and things like that. So it's everywhere. We are luckily protected by a magnetosphere that stops a lot of the uh, radiation from the uh, universe coming in to get us. Astronauts get fairly large doses because they're not as well protected. If you ever go to Mars, there's quite a bit of radiation off there, so we'd have to have ways to protect ourselves uh, from that radiation. So should we be afraid? If we get a lot of it, yes, but no, we shouldn't. I think it's something that's easy to feel scared of. Like there's, there has over the years been lots of um, media and things that in heighten the drama of radiation. And when in reality too much of anything is not good for you, too much of water is not good for you. That's absolutely true. Too much of anything is a bad thing. It is very difficult to get too much radiation. You have to try. like You really have to try. The only time you don't have to try to get too much radiation is when you're having radiotherapy for cancer and you're deliberately being hit with too much in order to kill the cancer cell. Yeah, and in which case, like, it's not just you wandering around being like, give me all the radiation. Like, it's a very – there's a team who've come up with a plan. They've targeted it. Like, it's very specific. That's right. Yes, deliberately trying to do something. Therefore, you need a lot of radiation. <laughs> and it's very isolated too. You're not bombarding your whole body with radiation, just the bit that you're trying to get to. You asked what radiation is. Yes, and you didn't answer because I suspect it's a really hard question. <laughs> I'll give you my interpretation. So my simple interpretation. So you have atoms. And when I was young, I was taught that they were made up of protons and neutrons in the nucleus and surrounded by electrons. So let's forget about those electrons for now and just look at the nucleus, so the protons and the neutrons. If the nucle uh, nucleus is not happy, a little bit unbalanced, the number of protons and neutrons aren't happy in their configuration, they're said to be unstable and they're radioactive, meaning because they're not happy and they're unstable, they like to throw off small particles to become stable. So radiation effectively the kind of radiation I'm talking about, the ionizing stuff, is what's coming out of the nucleus of an atom that's not happy because it's unstable. So the types of particles that, come, that are coming out of this unstable nucleus are neutrons, alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma rays. They're four examples of particles. So this is, this is radiation, small things coming out from the nucleus of an atom. Like literally teeny tiny things radiating. They're, they are teeny tiny things. <laughs> alpha particles, um, if you think back to high school, if you ever did any science, alpha particles don't penetrate even a bit of paper. So you can protect yourself from them with a piece of paper or something similar to that. But they are quite, can be hazardous if you inhale them or eat them. So don't eat the alpha particles. Uh, beta particles are like an electron. They will go through paper, but they're stopped, still stop quite easily. Gamma rays can go through paper quite easily and can go right through you tend to be not as hazardous unless you get a lot of them and neutrons are similar to gammas as well. And that's where we end up lining things with lead or like super thick concrete walls. Like I'm assuming there's a, quite a concrete wall or some, some kind of wall between you and the nuclear reactor that's 100 metres away. 
<laughs> there is, yeah, several layers of concrete and steel and water. I actually use water as a kind of a shield as well for those neutrons and the other radiation. So the actual reactor itself is sitting at the bottom of a pool of water. You can actually look down at it, but those are, it's about 12 or so metres of water provide shielding so that you can get so close to it and look down at it and use it for the various applications. That's so nifty. I just never thought about water being used like that. But So does that, what do you do with that water? Surely that's now radioactive. Okay, we keep it really clean for a start. So we take the water and we're putting it through filters and keeping it clean. It can have small bits of contamination in it, and that's why we clean it. But no, it's pretty clean. I had a question about, you mentioned the beamline stuff where you're sending particles down a, a line to get to get images. That sounds a whole lot like synchrotrons. That's exactly right. So ANSTO also runs the Australian Synchrotron, which is down in Melbourne. It is a light source. It produces x-rays that are used to examine materials and other substances, take pictures effectively. So it's exactly the same for the beamline, but we're using neutrons instead of x-rays. Are you able to give us like a 101 how a reactor reacts or how does that how do you keep that whole process under control that is a fantastic question so all reactors basically work in a similar way to each other but there's many different designs of reactors so I'll just talk generally so nuclear reactors have a core of called a core it's usually made of uranium but you can also use other substances like plutonium in opal we use a uranium core so what's happening in that core it was worked out a long time ago that if you can hit a uranium atom with a neutron depending on the kind of uranium atom you can get it to split apart into multiple pieces it's called a nuclear fission so when that happens you get a few byproducts you get heat or energy you get two or three neutrons and you also get smaller atoms called fission products. So in a research reactor, what you're concerned with or what you want is to maximise the generation of those neutrons so that you can use them to make nuclear medicine, to do science or to eradicate, irradiate silicon or whatever, whatever other application that you have. So once you've got that uranium atom splitting, it's producing two or three more neutrons, you want one of those neutrons to go and hit another uranium atom so it splits, etc., etc. This is called a chain reaction. So all nuclear reactors are working based on a, a chain reaction. If you have too many neutrons, though, you might have things, you know, getting a bit out of control so that the design of nuclear reactors is very important to ensure this doesn't happen. You've also got control rods, which is the most standard common way of controlling these nuclear fissions that are happening in cores. The control rods, they just are made of materials that like to absorb neutrons and sort of take them into their structure. And that's how the, the basic way of, of controlling the reaction. Yeah, right. Uh, so in a research reactor, what you really want to do is use those neutrons, the excess neutrons that you're generating for those various purposes. In a nuclear power plant, they don't care about what's happening with the neutrons. They're still controlling everything with control rods and other processes. Uh, but what they care about in a nuclear power plant is the heat that's generated when a, when a uranium atom fissions, because that heat can be used to make electricity. How do you sense what's going on inside the reactor? Because like... Um, like your standard temperature probe or whatever kind of probe, like I'm assuming you can't put it in there because I'm assuming it would be kind of destroyed. So how do you know what's happening inside? We have all sorts of different pieces of measuring equipment. So that th nothing sits inside the core itself, but it's all a bit, a little bit away from the core. So we measure neutron flux, how many neutrons are in there. It is very important to be able to control the power. <laughs> of the reactor, how many neutrons it's producing and what sort of energy it's producing, even though nuclear research reactors don't produce energy. We still measure their power. We've also got uh, measurements of temperature, pressure, water heights, uh, flow rates, all sorts of different things. And the things that are really critical to safety, we don't have one instrument there, we have three. It's called redundancy. You don't want to have just one instrument measuring a particular Parameter, you want to have multiple instruments. 
in case something happens to that one, you've got two others um, that are also continuing to measure properly. And it means you can you can compare against the three as well and make sure that one hasn't gone like out of alignment or something. That's exactly right. Cause, and that, that's what happens regularly. You compare the three and if something has gone out of alignment, we can put it into a state, it's called the trip state, until we eventually go back and fix it basically. <laughs> If you have two of the three instruments in a trip state, it can cause the reactor to shut down. So it's important that we, um, it, it's, called, it, it's, got, it's got this whole voting logic going on. So if uh, instrument two, two of the three instruments are detecting something that's slightly not normal, they have the power to tell the reactor protection systems to um, shut the reactor down. How do you stop it? Like I would have thought once you've got that whole chain reaction going, that would be quite... A bit of momentum to get in the way of. Actually, it's quite easy. You can shut the reactor down within a second. So wow, bang, that's how quick it is. We have um, that's by the the insertion of the control rods back into the core. Right. So basically, this is obviously not accurate, but they you drop them in, all the excess energy just sort of goes and gets like attracted away, and it all comes down. Well, all the neutrons that are in that core, which are being formed by all those uranium atoms splitting, um, they, they kind of hit the control rods and get absorbed. And there's not enough neutrons to keep the chain reaction going. So the chain reaction stops and sort of just the whole thing just peters out. It's fairly quick. I mean, there's still some reactions going on and there's still some sort of heat being generated for some time after shutdown, but most of it just ends just like that within a second. That's so speedy. I do have to ask... The uranium that you're using, is that local? Is that Australian uranium? Can we, we be proud of it, that it's like local? <laughs> well, Australia does have the largest known reserves of uranium in the world. We're currently the third largest producer of uranium. So we have a lot. We don't export much. And is it Australian uranium? I honestly do not know. <laughs> There's international agreements about the transfer of uranium making sure it's called being safeguarded, making sure that it's properly tracked and accounted for. So where our uranium goes, I guess we sell it to customers overseas who will use it to make fuel assemblies, some of which are for Opal and all the power reactors as well. Is it Australian? I'd say some of it probably would be, but I am not privy to know the answer to that question. Okay, so it doesn't come in into the building in a, in a box that's like stamped with the little kangaroo made in Australia? <laughs> well, the actual fuel assemblies aren't made in Australia. They are made overseas, uh, but it could be, what is it, made overseas using 20% Australian goods. <laughs> I wish it had something like that written on it. What percentage of Australian uranium is in here? <laughs> well, be no. <laughs> so I do, I probably have to ask and, you know, not... I'm not super proud, but the what most people would probably be aware of in, in a day-to-day relationship with anything nuclear would be The Simpsons. I, so I personally think it's one of the best shows ever made. Oh, okay, okay. This is because of the multiple levels of humor in there. The the jokes the adults get, and the jokes the kids get. <laughs> right, not because of the representation of um, nuclear. No, no, it's totally wrong. <laughs> what I was gonna ask is in in these shows, there's there's the glowing kind of um, the tubes that glow and various things happen to them, whether the dog runs off with it or I, I don't know. People like have to very delicately put the tubes into like a thing and then lock them in. What are those tubes like? What's the media trying to represent with those tubes? Are you talking about at the start, at the intro of The Simpsons when that green rod thing goes yes. flying and... Um, but yeah. when it's skateboard, um, yeah, I, no such components exist in a nuclear power plant, as far as I'm aware. It's totally made up. As far as I'm aware, like I don't work in a nuclear power plant, but any kind of highly radioactive, it doesn't represent nuclear fuel, that's for sure, because nuclear fuel assemblies are much bigger than that. It, unless it represents some kind of component that's being maintained, possibly. It's a little bit sketchy, let me put it that way. Are you trying to tell me that The Simpsons isn't an accurate representation of, like, the reality? Wow. No, no, it's not. And the uh, green drums of oozing 
I don't know what it is. Yeah, also not an accurate representation. Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed to be. Yeah. Most of, the, most of the waste coming out of nuclear power plants, there is some liquid stuff, but I think in The Simpsons, the, the liquid green glowing thing, not sure what that's meant to be. Nuclear reactors don't glow green, they actually glow blue as well. Another misconception, the colour. Oh, uranium is, hmm, like obviously it itself doesn't glow. Surely it doesn't just glow by itself. It could in its rock form. So uranium is a mineral that's found in rocks. It could glow. I'll dig it up for you right now. It. Oh, if you just Google, everybody listening, uranium glow, it, it can glow under a UV light. Oh. So there's uranium clocks, uranium watches in the past used to be painted with uranium, so they will glow in the dark a little bit. So, yeah, it can glow. Oh. Yeah, I remember about the watches because they're – the people who did the super fine painting on them, they'd lick their paintbrushes and they'd end up with a very specific kind of cancer in their mouths from licking the paintbrushes. That's very tragic, yes. Mm. But, yeah, absolutely, it can glow. Does it glow naturally when you dig it out of the ground? Maybe if it's in a high enough concentration in the rock. I'll probably have to go and ask a geologist that question. It's okay. We'll find we'll find a um, <laughs> a uranium geologist and I'll, I'll grill them about what the rocks because there's a lot of like relatively there's quite a lot in Australia and I, I know people have spoken about like glowing rocks but it's always like are they really glowing or are you just being poetic you can actually do glow to find some images does uranium glow they make things out of uranium that can glow but do the rocks themselves glow it's any more like they fluoresce I'm going to have to say I don't know and I don't know if I want to encourage people to go and dig up some uranium and go and check for themselves. Probably not the best idea. I actively want to discourage people from that activity. Please do not. (laughs) Please do not. But please jump onto Google and do some investigations for yourself if you want to know if uranium glows. (laughs) Yes, desktop desktop investigations, all supportive of that. So I've taken you so far off the track, we can't see the track anymore. You're testing my knowledge of all things to do with nuclear, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm preparing you for the next time you go out to a primary school and the kids are like, what does what does The Simpsons have to do? <laughs> what does an average day at work look like for you? Every day is different, and sometimes you don't know what's going to come up during the day. My job is very collaborative because I spend a lot of time working with the engineers at Opal who are busy keeping the place running and the operations team and other people uh, to make sure we are operating as efficiently and effectively as possible. So a typical day for me means talking to a lot of people about the work that they're doing, uh, helping to look at the safety aspects of the work that they're doing, and a lot of time in meetings and in front of my computer, which is okay. Uh, I don't don't have a hands-on job here at Opal. We have many, many staff here who are there turning on pumps, turning off pumps, starting out the reactor, putting nuclear medicine targets into the reactor, fixing things, lots of different hands-on people, and that's not me, but I get definitely get to work with those people who are physically interacting with the plant and, and helping them um, from the nuclear safety perspective. And I imagine part of that would be having chats with people so that you can see, like, detect if there's going to be a problem early as well, because obviously people who are face-to-face with with the tools and things, they're going to have inklings if something might go wrong or whatever, and then if you can chat to them and hopefully nip that in the bud. Well, that's absolutely right. Like We spend a lot of time investing in um, our maintenance planning and execution so that we can identify faults or issues early before they become bigger faults and bigger issues. So we definitely have a massive program around our maintenance and how we do that. Something else that I forgot to mention that I do do regularly is I interact with our nuclear safety regulator. They're called ARPANSA, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency. So my job is the regular sort of day-to-day interactions with that particular regulator for OPAL. We also have other people at ANSTO who communicate with the regulators on behalf of ANSTO as well. But a large part of my job is just getting information ready for the regulator as and when they request it. And whilst I imagine there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of emails, etc., it's also really reassuring as a member of the general public to know that 
this is so heavily regulated and you guys are really paying attention to every nut and bolt. I think the nuclear industry and the aircraft industry are possibly the two most heavily regulated industries worldwide, which is good to know. (laughs) When it comes to safety, for instance, state safety of a nuclear reactor, worldwide practice is the operator is responsible. So ANSTO is responsible for the safety of the reactor. It's also our job to demonstrate to the regulator that we are safe. You've got to assure the regulator as well. And if the regulator is assured, then they can then go and assure the public. That's sort of how it works. So we don't do anything here unless we're satisfied that we're happy with the safety of it. And we will get things approved by the regulator as appropriate too, depending on what we're trying to do. Well, what happens if we try this? Okay, in order to try this, we need to do all this paperwork (laughs) before we can try this. (laughs) So probably not, no. It's not the kind of place where you want to go and make rash decisions and do things quickly. Everything's done with due consideration, lots of brainstorming, lots of asking the question, what if, having something called a conservative decision-making, so choosing the more conservative outcome if it'll achieve the same thing as a less conservative outcome and and asking lots of questions being able to I'll use the word challenge challenge the decisions of management in a polite and respectful way if you disagree that kind of sort of questioning attitude is really encouraged and it works really well you don't want a workforce that just does what they're told if they think they're doing something wrong and that's not what happens. People are empowered to, to ask why am I doing this and, and to suggest other or improve ways of doing things. So we're on this big continuous improvement mission and this will continue for the whole life of this reactor and Australia gets another one one day, the life of that reactor too. That's awesome to hear. That's a very healthy work environment. If you can, if anyone's empowered to be like, oh, maybe this isn't the best plant. Maybe let's just like take this back to the drawing board. We've got these um, passes to get into work and we used to have this thing that went in the back that said star, stop, think, act, review. So everyone's empowered to stop if something isn't right for them, to think about it, to take appropriate actions, to change course and then to review the outcome. We also have a lot of operating instructions and things that people use. People just can't go and do work on the plant without talking to the shift manager and getting approval to go and do it and so many processes and procedures because we, what we want to do is be able to operate this reactor as effectively and efficiently as possible so that we can maximise the benefits that we're bringing to the people of Australia, nuclear medicine, science and industry. So if we're not operating for because we haven't, we've done something we potentially shouldn't have done, that's not good for Australia. So we really want to work as a team and collaborate and make sure that this reactor is running to its full potential. And we do that by double-checking, moving slowly but steadily kind of thing. Slow and steady, that's correct. There's no panicking going on. <laughs> we want to minimise panic and just keep people, give people the, the time to breathe and, breathe and think and have a good work-life balance as well. That's very important uh, to give people the downtime that they need as well so that they can work really effectively at work. Oh, sounds like a great work environment, actually. International uh, philosophy, there's a thing called, in nuclear called safety culture. And all so plants around the world are all looking at how can we improve, constantly adapt and improve our safety culture. Because usually uh, when it's incidents at nuclear plants, there's often a human element. So by giving people the tools they need to prevent the human element from occurring and making it harder for people to make mistakes, that's what we're always trying to improve on. So we can have less incidents and keep these plants operating. It's interesting. Interesting. How have you ended up in this job? Because I can't imagine many high school students are sitting there going, you know what, not only am I going to work in nuclear, I'm going to be the regulatory and licensing officer. How do you you go from high school to where you are now? Well, high school, that was a long time ago now. You're stretching my memory. (laughs) When I was in high school, I was actually quite good at field hockey. So I was surrounded by physios, PE teachers, exercise physiologists, those sorts of people. So when I was in high school for a while, I wanted to be a physio. And physio is a great career choice. When it came to choosing subjects for year in 11 and year 12, I didn't choose PE, health, PD or whatever it's called these days. 
I decided that I wanted to do the subjects I enjoyed, but that it would also get me good marks. Because if you get good marks, it opens up the opportunities that you have in your career. So I studied maths, physics, and chemistry, good combination, and English and modern history. I remember in physics, I think it was in high school, learning a little bit about um, atoms and nuclear stuff. Not in great deal, but it was interesting to me. I found it a little bit mysterious, maybe a little bit controversial. So that's where my interest in nuclear began. I decided to go and study environmental engineering, and I chose engineering because my brother was also studying engineering, and he seemed to be having a good time. He chose a different kind of engineering that I didn't find particularly interesting myself, but the environment for me, I'm like, yes, I want to, you know, have a, have a career where I can help to find practical solutions to pollution problems. So one of my biggest loves in my life, my biggest passion is just hiking and camping because I just love to be out in nature. I'd rather be in nature than in the city, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so I did environmental engineering. That also had some nuclear physics type stuff. I think it was second year physics or something like that. But my real interest in nuclear began when I was in my fourth year of my environmental engineering degree. I had to choose an honours thesis topic and I wasn't really too keen on any of the topics that were given to me by the lecturers at the time. I said, I like the environment. <laughs> I've also got this weird interest in nuclear. I want to go and do my undergraduate honours thesis on nuclear waste disposal. What about the waste, right? That's a question that people often ask. So I wanted to go and learn more about radioactive waste. So I actually came to ANSTO as a 20-something-year-old and did my honours thesis on radioactive waste disposal. That got me really interested in, in nuclear. After that, though, what happened was I really enjoyed university and I wasn't quite ready to go and get a real job once I did finish my degree. And one of the lecturers offered me with appropriate paperwork, of course, um, a scholarship to do a PhD, which I decided, hey, that sounds great. I can stay at uni for another three or four years. It's a great lifestyle. I can say that because I was living at home, so I didn't have to work at the same time. It was pretty good life back then. Um, the PhD was in railway engineering, of all things. I'm actually an expert in railway foundations. Uh, after that, I got a job as a consulting engineer doing environmental and geotechnical type work, which involved digging lots of holes all over Wollongong and Sydney, taking dirt, um, soil samples and testing for basic geotechnical um, parameters and also for contamination, what's in the dirt from an environmental perspective. It's interesting because this was a fantastic job, but I also wasn't really passionate about it. And that's when I decided time to consider going back into nuclear. So I applied for a job at Antsto and at Arpanza, uh, the regulatory body. I was fortunate to have gotten both, uh, but I chose to come and work at ANSTO. I started in quality. So if you can think about operating a nuclear reactor, quality of documentation is very important and auditing and checking things. So I, I started off in quality, helping to write documentation and update documentation for the reactor. And then after a few years, uh, I got this licensing role, which I'm absolutely passionate about. The reasons why I love it is it's, it's unique. You get to work at a nuclear reactor. I get to come here every day or when I'm not working from home and just go, wow, this is the only reactor in Australia. This is doing marvellous things for the people of Australia. This is cool. It's a nuclear reactor. It's what else about it? It's, I'm also the only person in Australia who has my specific job. So that makes it kind of cool. What I really love about the job is it's about we have three different kinds of safety in ANSTO. We have work health safety. We have radiation protection and nuclear safety. So my job, I'm involved in work health safety and radiation protection, but my job really is how can we keep this reactor safe? And I think that's just such a, well, for me, it's really, really interesting. That's why I'm doing it. But when a lot of, when I talk to people about nuclear reactors, they often say, is it safe? I can say, well, actually, the most dangerous thing I do every day is drive to work. And that's the absolute truth. <laughs> This quite this surprises people actually when I say, Yeah, I work at a nuclear reactor, it's dangerous when I have to drive on the roads to get to work. <laughs> then I go and say, Well, I don't really have a hands on the plant type job. I'm kind of sit at my computer most of the time, but the people who have the most dangerous job at the reactor are the electricians, electrical hazards. Because <laughs> we control radiation so well, um, it's there as a hazard and we have to keep monitoring it and controlling it and you know, reviewing the controls that we do have. But in terms of safety, 
yeah, electrical work, slips, trips and falls on the staircases, some manual handling type hazards as well. They're, they're the things that are more likely to occur than a radiological incident or, or nuclear incident. I can see people just being like, what? No, driving's like totally safe. You work in nuclear, that's got to be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> As I said before, it is one of the mostly most heavy, heavily regulated industries in the world, the nuclear industry. So everything's well managed and controlled. We are safe, people. We are safe. <laughs> we are safe. That was an awesome, awesome little adventure. Did you say you, I, I totally neglected to write it down, but you're also on a board? So I am the, the president of the Australian Nuclear Association, which is an independent incorporated association made up of individuals who are interested in nuclear. So it's an organisation for their members. It's sort of like a professional body, but there's no set requirements for joining. You just need to demonstrate an interest in, in nuclear. So it can be an interest in nuclear science and technology, such as all the fine work that ANSTO does, or it could be an interest in nuclear energy and other peaceful nuclear applications as well. Something I'll quickly want to talk about, sorry, is uh, maybe 10 or so, eight to 10 years ago, I was introduced to an organisation called Women in Nuclear Australia by a good friend and colleague of mine who later sort of coached me to become the president of the Australian branch of this. And I became president about five years ago. So Women in Nuclear Australia, Women in Nuclear is a global organisation and it has chapters around the world. So Australia is one chapter of, of the global organisation. The reason I bring this up is it's through Women in Nuclear that I've been able to go to conferences around the world uh, to expand my knowledge of all peaceful nuclear applications, not just uh, research reactors like we have in Australia, but also things like power reactors and other applications. So being introduced to a, to a, a volunteer organisation, which I then went on to lead, has opened up so many other opportunities in terms of collaboration and networking around the world. And just brings a whole new perspective to, to nuclear. It brought a whole new perspective to nuclear for me. Nuclear is research reactors. It's also power reactors. It's all the different radiological applications that are used throughout the world to make the world better. You probably don't know, but we actually use radioactive traces in the environment to help study and improve the environment. You wouldn't think, oh, hang on, why would you put radiation into the environment? That doesn't sound like a good idea. But it's one of the techniques that's used by ANSTO and other organisations to help improve what's going on in the environment to make it a better world. So, so many different applications of nuclear and radiological applications, uh, which is really my eyes were opened up to it by all these international um, conferences I was able to attend as the president of Women in Nuclear Australia. That's so cool. Was it also really good for networking? Yes, absolutely. I'm still good friends with a, a lot of different, we're called winners, lots of winners around the world. So I guess that was a fantastic organisation. And now to be leading the Australian Nuclear Association, I wouldn't say a step up, it's, it's a different kind of organisation, but it's, uh, it's fascinating and it allows me to become more involved in other nuclear issues beyond just what I do at Anston. That's got to be cool. The good thing about the nuclear industry is there's a lot of collaboration that actually goes on. So the reactors, the nuclear power reactors, for example, they have collaborations and they talk to each other about things that are going well and things that they found that other reactors might need to check out and see if they had the same issue or not. So it's a huge international network of, of people trying to work together to make our industry uh, bigger and better. I want to say safer as well, but it's that's the really, it's a hard thing to talk about safety because nuclear People perceive nuclear sometimes to be unsafe. Looking at the data, it doesn't match people's perceptions sometimes, most of the time. So, but there's all definitely a striving for continuous improvement of operations, continuous improvements of safety cultures, continuous improvements of whatever we can improve to make things better. Uh, this is in nuclear energy, uh, but also even research reactors. We um, ANSTO has a collaboration with a couple of research reactors overseas where we meet regularly and talk about things that we found. As soon as you sit back and stop looking for ways to improve, that's when things can happen, right? It's called complacency. We don't get complacent. One of the worst things we can do. And I guess this is probably very similar to other sort of industries that have hazards as well. 
oil refineries or places where there's lots of chemical stores. You don't want to sit back and, and, and just say, oh, we're perfect now because that's when you stop looking, you stop thinking, you stop trying to be better. Yeah. And if you've done something 100 times, you still need to do your safety assessment before you do it because it's that 101th time when you don't do the safety assessment where things go wrong. That's right. It's something might be slightly different in the plant compared to normal. You want to be able to identify that before you start working. So we have uh, instructions that we follow, but also when people are following instructions, they're expected to also look out for things that are unexpected. What advice would you give to a young person who's listening to this and is like, oh, that sounds kind of awesome. What advice would you give to them? At the moment, Australia has the one reactor, but we also have, what do we have? A synchrotron, a cyclotron, multiple accelerators, a couple of nuclear medicine production facilities. And this is just ANSTO's facilities, so quite a few different pieces of equipment. Nuclear isn't huge in Australia at the moment, but depending on the future, there may be scope for a massive expansion into a nuclear energy industry but at the moment that's not government policy but there is potential there are many many opportunities right now in nuclear overseas so Australia doesn't have nuclear energy plenty of other countries do and plenty of other countries are expanding their technologies into small molecule reactors advanced reactors and refurbishing existing reactors so that they can operate for longer so in terms of working at a nuclear reactor there are some job opportunities in Australia but you will find more opportunities at the moment overseas. There are some degrees in Australia that you can do if you're interested in nuclear. The University of New South Wales runs a Masters of Nuclear Engineering course. So if you have an engineering degree, you can go back to uni for a couple more years, I think it is, and you will be a Master of Nuclear Engineering. There's also a Master of Nuclear Science course from the Australian National University as well if you're interested in the scientific side of it as opposed to the engineering side of it. So we do have uh, postgraduate university courses in nuclear, some nuclear jobs in Australia, not a huge industry in Australia at the moment, could be in future, who knows, many jobs overseas because countries like USA, Canada and the UK, for example, are embracing nuclear energy as one of the uh, technologies or reducing the impacts of climate change. And so are countries like India, China, and Russia as well. May or may not be harder to get a job there. I really don't know. I imagine that's very language dependent then. Just recently, South Korea built four nuclear reactors in the United Arab Emirates. So you've got South Koreans working with the United Arab Emirates, everything done in English. So yeah, if you know a couple of different languages, you might be a great opportunity to get a, a job in another country helping to build nuclear power plants or research reactors, who knows, (laughs) or nuclear fusion reactors, the ultimate type of nuclear reactor. I feel like we'd need to do a whole other podcast on that. (laughs) Can I briefly talk about what nuclear fusion is? Oh, just for the people up the back. Just for the people up the back. So the nuclear reactors at the moment, they're called nuclear fusion reactors, meaning you get a big particle, normally uranium, and you split it apart. Nuclear fusion is kind of the opposite. You get little particles and you fuse them together. And this creates a lot of energy and heat, which you could also use to make electricity. So at the moment, there's several fusion reactors that are operating around the world, but they all, as far as I'm aware, use more electricity to make the reaction occur than you actually get out of the reaction. So ultimately what scientists and engineers want to do is to create nuclear fusion reactors that do need some electricity to get them started, but create a lot more electricity than they use. Nuclear fusion is said by some to be an ultimate energy source. It's like creating little suns in boxes. That's what we're actually trying to do. Ultimate energy source because there's unlimited fuel and the waste that comes from these reactors is minimal and doesn't last very long. So there's a few projects going on around the world. The ITER project in France is the largest one, and Australia has some involvement in that, which I'm happy to say. And hopefully they're about to crack it and make it work. I guess it really will be a fantastic source of zero-carbon energy if we can get it working. And we have been working on it for quite a while because I met someone, I think it was in 2006, a PhD student who was working on it, and they're like, we've got this, I'm all over it. And I'm like, (laughs) looking around now, like, where is it? (laughs) 
Okay, so what trying to create a sun in a box is very, very difficult because we don't have um, on the sun, there's lots of pressure and that helps to fuse the particles together. We just don't have that pressure on Earth. So we have to create some pressure, but we also need really high temperatures. And I believe the temperatures they need to get to are about a million times more than the center of the sun. Huge. So how do you contain that kind of temperature in a metallic box with electromagnets? So it's quite technically very, very difficult. Yes, but it, there's, a, there's a joke about nuclear fusion that 50 years ago, it was 50 years away and it's still 50 years away. I like to think that the climate crisis and the energy crisis going on in the world, so many people still don't have access to electricity in the world, that we will be able to solve this challenge and help with climate change and energy using nuclear fusion. Time will tell. There's great minds, great people, lots of um, countries working on this. So I really hope we do get there. Maybe, maybe that will be a future job for some of our listeners. Maybe not nuclear fusion in Australia, but nuclear fusion overseas. Ooh. Well, hopefully, like, if we crack it, we'll have some in Australia too. That would be very, very, very cool if we had some, yeah. Surely. <laughs> We're not just going to yeah, be absolutely, like, yeah. no, we'll sit here with our traditional. Um... <laughs> Go on, say it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for me, I see nuclear energy as part of a solution to climate change. Not the only one. I think we've got to be sensible and use diversity and use a mix. And that's basically what's going on in the world. Yeah, I think um, especially if 2020 has taught us, like it's taught us a lot, but having a mixture of things that you can draw on in whatever whether it's like a diversity of a workforce or like a diversity of food in your cupboard or like a diversity of energy sources, diversity is good. And having a, like being able to draw on all sorts of different things and different strengths is really important. I agree. And whether Australia ever decides to go down the nuclear energy path is a decision for Australia, Australians and the Australian government. So we'll see. And we can only do that, people, if you are informed. And if you're making decisions based off actual reality as opposed to media drama or The Simpsons. Even though it is a good cartoon. <laughs> um, is it okay if I plug a couple of websites that people might be interested in going to have a look at if they're worried about safety? Totally. Okay, so there's a website that I love. It's called Our World in Data. Our World in Data. It has data and graphs and information, not just about electricity and energy, also about health. What else is on there? Uh, various measures of human well-being. So it's, it's a very broad website and it's affiliated with the University of Oxford. It has sections on energy, electricity and climate change. So if you want to see how electricity and energy is being generated right now around the world and in Australia, it does dive down into individual countries, but around the world in general, it has some fabulous graphs that show you that, for instance, how much of the world's electricity is coming from fossil fuels, wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, other sources, and how much energy as well. Because electricity is like a subset of energy. Energy includes transport and any kind of energy used in industry. Industries don't always use electricity. They can use gas directly or oil directly, things like that. So our world in data, fabulous graphs, very easy to understand on how the world is generating its energy and electricity. It also has some graphs on, if you type into this our world in data, what is the safest and cleanest form of energy? If you're worried about uh, nuclear energy, you want to know more about it, it, it dives into the safety of all major forms of energy generation, so the fossil fuels, nuclear, and the renewables and hydro-type technologies, and also looks at how clean they are from a CO2 perspective. So I'd recommend, if you want to know more about safety and the cleanliness of different types of energy-generating technologies, you go and check out Our World in Data. So that's my second favourite website on energy. My favourite website on energy is called electricitymap.org. So if you go and have a look at this right now as we're talking, Amelia, what you'll see is it is a, gives you a map of the world and it shows you in live, so at that instance, how certain parts of the world are generating their electricity. So right in that moment, how parts of the world, unfortunately it doesn't cover the whole world, but how parts of the world are generating their electricity and at the same time, 
the carbon emissions that are resulting from that energy generation. The reason I love this website is it shows you what's happening in each state of Australia, uh, not, not the Northern Territory, unfortunately, it's not included, but you can see where at any one time, for example, you can, you can very easily tell how windy it is in South Australia. Uh, South Australia has lots of wind and solar. If it's night time or if it's not windy, you can see South Australia's emissions go up because they're starting to import electricity from Victoria. But when it's really windy and sunny, the carbon emissions are really, really low, all uh, that electricity from renewable technologies. You can see Tasmania, it's very, very low carbon emissions when their hydro plants are running. Fabulous. It just puts into perspective which technologies around the world are producing electricity with the lowest carbon emissions. So both electricitymap.org and also our world in data, they both highlight that the two technologies that are currently producing the most low carbon electricity are hydropower, number one. Some of the places with the cleanest electricity in the world have a lot of hydropower. Uh, and number two is actually nuclear power. So that's where the nuclear pit comes into this as the second largest source at the moment of low carbon electricity. For your interest, wind is third, solar is fourth. Wind and solar are growing quite rapidly though, so that's that's great to see. I just recommend that people go and have a look at electricitymap.org and it tells you who's, who's also transferring electricity to whom. So over in Europe, for example, there's a massive grid, all the countries are joined to each other. So what often happens in somewhere like Germany that has a lot of wind power it can have lower, pretty low emissions or lower emissions when it's very windy. When it's not windy, the emissions go up because they need to start burning more fossil fuels. Plus, they can export into France, France, which runs consistently low um, carbon electricity from nuclear, will send their electricity into Germany. So a massive distribution network going on. I think it's fascinating. And having just had a look at it now, it's pretty awesome. And we will be including links to both these websites in the show notes because... They're very educational. It's awesome. It just really shows you, unfortunately, the east coast of Australia, just how, I'll use the word dirty, our electricity currently is compared to some other parts of the world that are utilising, in particular, a lot of hydro and a lot of nuclear. Not that hydro is perfect, nuclear is not perfect, renewables aren't perfect. None of these energy sources are perfect and they all have their pros and cons. Do you have a virtual high five? for us someone or something that's doing an awesome job that you would like everyone listening to give high fives to i've got two groups actually if that's okay i can double up uh the first one is an organization called science and technology australia are you familiar with them i am a bit i think that's how we came across you that is correct so science and technology australia they're an organization that links uh scientists engineers other stem professionals uh, in with politicians and industry and tries to get the groups talking to each other a little bit more. So Science and Technology Australia runs a couple of programs. One's called Superstars of STEM, which I was uh, fortunate to have been a part of in their 2019-2020 group. I don't, I'm not sure if, if, I, if I hadn't had this training in communication through Superstars of STEM, I don't know if I would be here today doing this podcast. It just gave me a lot of confidence. So Superstars of STEM is all about getting female STEM professionals trained in advanced communication so that they can talk about what they do as clearly and simply as possible with the community and with politicians. And it's also about trying to encourage uh, young people to consider a career in STEM. So science, technology, engineering and mathematics. We're definitely going to need more STEM professionals in the future to try to solve some of the problems going on in the world at the moment. So I really want to encourage anybody listening to really have a think about a career in STEM because it's diverse, such a huge amount of things that you can do, and it's very rewarding when you can find creative solutions to problems. Um, STA also runs another program called Science Meets Parliament, so trying to get people who know the science talking more to politicians in this country to try to help them to influence policies. That's very important. The second group I want to give a virtual high five to is all the people at Opal and Ansto who have the sort of the hands-on jobs, the people who are maintaining the equipment, who are who are putting the targets in and out of the reactor. So the, the hands-on te technician type roles and the engineers, because I think that they do an amazing job at Opal and Ansto as a whole, and I'm in awe of what they're able to do. These are wonderful. There's so many people there that we need to give high fives to. So I just want to give high fives to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and SDA are doing 
undeniably awesome work, all doing an amazing job. And I think providing resources to Australia that like, it's awesome. We can produce anything medical locally and that like, it'll be helping people. And that's, that's so cool. A big reactor or a small reactor, however big it is, it's like making a difference to people's lives. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Joe. It's been so cool. You dealt with so many curly questions. And I hope everyone listening has learned something and is going to be a bit more open-minded in the future. I want to thank you very much, Amelia, for having me on today. As a takeaway message to anyone listening, I would like to encourage you to learn more about nuclear technologies. Some of the stuff that you currently may think about nuclear may or may not be correct. There's some great sites out there, uh, very neutral sites. One's the International Atomic Energy Agency. Might not sound neutral, but it has a lot of information about nuclear power, research reactors, other peaceful nuclear technologies. Uh, and I also want to encourage people, you may not know that ANSTO does public tours. So please, you can book into a public tour. I'm not sure if they're running at the moment for the general public, but you can just Google ANSTO tours and you'll be able to find out. The school tours are back and running again, so there's often lots of kids visiting. So please, if you want to learn more about ANSTO, not just Opal, but ANSTO in general, please come and have a visit. We'd love to see you here. That's awesome. I'll have to come up next time we come to Sydney. That'd be so cool. Sounds excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been an awesome way to start the day. I agree. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 